0: Hello inspiring automotive enthusiasts and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Brownsville, California in the forest with a very special guest by the name of Brands Elich. Brands, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear and are you ready to release the clutch?
1: Yes, Mark, I am.
0: All right. We're going to have some fun today. Now, before we get started and I give you a proper introduction and we talk about a very cool book that you've authored, what's one little thing that maybe people don't know about you, Brands?
1: Well, Not a lot of people know this, but um, when I was born, I was um, listening in the maternity ward, and I heard the doctors talking about the new Packard, which had just (laughs) been released a few months previously. Uh And so when my parents took me home uh, from the maternity ward, I wanted them to stop Packard dealers so I could see the new Packards. (laughs) But unfortunately, I couldn't speak yet. So that didn't happen, but it did bother me for a long time. And finally, a few years later, in 1956, I got a bicycle And on a Saturday morning, I rode to the Packard dealership and I got a brochure, which I still have. And I took it home to my parents who were having a Saturday lunch and I suggested to them that this would be a really good time to buy a new Packard. And um, they didn't have the resources to do that or buy anything else for that matter. And I guess they thought it was mildly amusing. And I said to myself, well, if you're not going to do that, I'll do it. So... Now I have a 56 Packard patrician.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. You are a storyteller, and that is awesome. I love that. You know, I've heard some interesting stories about cool cars. People rode home from the hospital in with their parents and so forth. Yeah, that's an interesting one and a funny one. But I'm happy that you finally got that car. Those a sign that dreams do come true if you work hard enough and – uh you want to do such a thing. Well, let me give you a proper introduction. and we're going to dive into your interesting life. Brant Elich has been an automotive enthusiast since he was a child, and he's owned numerous unique vehicles that he's restored. He had a long career in various industries outside of the automotive world, and about 14 years ago, he contacted Peter Vack, who you recall was a past guest here on CarShack, the publisher of Veloce Today, and he asked him if he could write a monthly column which he's done ever since. He was asked to write a book about a vehicle that Raymond Lowy, uh, known as one of the top 100 people of the 20th century in industrial design, and he did just that. And we're going to be talking about that book today. It involves Alantia, which is very, very cool. So sit tight, uh, have a little listen with our sponsors here before we continue. Give them a little love, and we're going to be right back. This is going to be fun. Covercraft's newest five-layer indoor cover is especially engineered for indoor use, providing maximum dust protection when your vehicle is stored in the garage. Your five-layer indoor cover is custom-tailored with Covercraft's attention to detail, form, and fit with the quality and attention to detail that's been their standard since 1965. Even if your vehicle is always inside, dust and fallout can damage the paint and an extra layer of soft Breathable material protects from accidental bumps and rubs. Covercraft protects cars, trucks, motorcycles, RVs, trailers, and watercraft too. Every one of my vehicles is protected with a Covercraft cover custom fit to fit the car like a glove. And I have a deal for you. If you use the code YEAH21 at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your order plus free shipping. That's right, 10% off and free shipping. Simply use the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. I was tired of my rates for my collector car insurance going up every year for no explainable reason. So, Brands, we are back. So, I want to cover a couple different areas in your life around cars. First of all, you know, you were working in a variety of different industries as your career, but you loved cars, obviously, from the day you went home from the hospital, as you shared. But what initially inspired you to contact Peter at Veloce Today and say, hey, I'd like to write a column for you?
1: You know, I can't even remember what happened yesterday, let alone 14 years ago. I think what intrigued me was that pete vax 's weekly column is so profe- so well done you know most of the a lot of the stuff you see well fourteen years ago there wasn't that much on the internet, but today there certainly is and it, most of it is not all that memorable, but Pete every week he turns out a new edition that has four new articles in it, and as I tell people, you know that 's sixteen a month that 's like getting automobile quarterly every month instead of once a quarter <laughs> yeah. and they are extremely high quality articles and I think that's what attracted me was the sheer quality of his work and also his enthusiasm and I think that goes back to your kind of mantra about inspiring automotive enthusiasts and I think that's what Pete does and that's what I've tried to do.
0: You know, this is pretty cool. Now, did did you know Pete before at all?
1: No, I didn't know him at all, no.
0: Okay, so uh, it's interesting, you know, a publisher gets a contact like this and says, well, what have you written before? You know, was there any kind of process with that? Or did he just say, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, sure, do it?
1: No, I think he just told me, well, I think, you know, I don't remember really all that well. I think he just said, go ahead and do it. And I started submitting articles in. Um, I don't think he's ever actually edited anything. I mean, I've covered... A lot of different things. You know, I've been to Retromobile numerous times. I've been to Essen. I've been went to General Auto Story for three years. I went to the Monaco Historics. I've been to Monterey every year since 1979. I've never missed a year. Wow. Um So there's always I, there's almost always something to write about every month. Although the last year or so has been um, a little difficult. I went to Hershey in October, so I was able to write about that. And I did actually three photo essays and three articles on the historics. And I just did one on the, Vel- uh, the Velocity International, the new show in mm-hmm. Laguna Rica. Um So it hasn't been there hasn't been that much activity in the last year or so. I'm hoping that things will open up this year.
0: Oh, we all are. Yeah, we need it. It's it's been a oh, I never thought I'd live through something like this. It's uh, very very odd times for sure. Well, I want to talk about this book, and you were so kind to send me a copy of this, and I I really found it fascinating, and I learned a lot about. Raymond Lowe, who's an incredible designer, he, people who understand design or know cars and have, have heard of him and all the things he was involved with, but this has to do with a, a special car uh Lancia, which are beautiful cars, but there's so many different varieties. Let's talk a little bit about this book and why you decided first of all to take on this challenge
1: right well actually I I can't take credit for that i had a I have a friend um whose name is Steve Snyder, and he had actually followed this car for many years and had documented it and had pictures and stories and all sorts of things. And every few months, he would say to me, somebody has to write a book about this. (laughs) And I put him off for about 20 years. (laughs) Is that all? (laughs) And and then finally, I thought, you know, maybe, well, what I found out is writing, you know, I've been writing monthly columns for a long time. I also wrote for 10 years a monthly column for a payments journal called the Green Sheet. So I'm pretty used to writing columns and they typically are 1,500 words. But writing a book is a completely different experience. And it's really all about the editor and the publisher. No matter how good a writer you think you are, if you don't have a good editor and a publisher, you're dead in the water. And so I took this idea to, to Dave Featherston, who you interviewed. And Dave was a pretty well-known editor and publisher, mostly hot rod stuff. He did the Barris books. He did um, oh, a whole variety of other books, about mostly about hot rods. But he'd been doing this for many, many years. And he said, well, you know, what do you want? And I said, I want a, I want a quality book that people are going to co- want to collect and save, almost like a coffee table book. And um he said, okay, we can do this. It's going to be going to be expensive. We're going to have to have it printed in China. And I said, I don't care. I just want a quality product. Mm -hmm. So I think between all the research that Steve Snyder did, and then of course, all the actual work that Dave Featherston did, that's what made the book. And and of course, and then there's the story of Loewy. Lowy is the father of industrial design. There are some other pretenders to the throne, but I don't think there's any real question that Lowy is in fact, the father of industrial design. And he was the only person that could go from New York to San Francisco in a car, truck, bus, boat, plane, aircraft, or locomotive of his own design. Amazing. And uh, and he did this for many, many years, and he had a very long life. In fact, I think just before he died, he did work on the Air Force One, I think. But he had a very long life, and of course, car people would know him from the Avanti. You know, I just saw an Avanti. I went to the Turlock swap meet on Saturday, and I saw a first-year Avanti. And I just even though I remember... I mean, I've looked at many Avantis for many years, and it just takes your breath away. How, <laughs> Very unique, that's for beautiful, sure. beautiful, beautiful, almost perfectly styled card. It just takes, it took my breath away. And I've I been looking at them for, you know, 40 years. And it just, so anyway, so he did the Avanti. That's what most people would know him for. And of course, other older people wouldn't think of him as Studebaker stylist. Loewy didn't actually do the work himself. He had other people do it, and he just signed his name to it, which, of course, was common. That was not, nothing to, nothing, there's no normative thing about that. But, so Bob Burke actually did the 53 Studebaker, uh, Starlight Coop, and and various other people did. I think uh, Virgil Exner did the uh, other Baker. But Lowy was the person that put it all together. He was the impresario, and he's the one that made it work.
0: He was a fascinating guy. And in reading your book, there's a couple of things, well, there were a lot of things I learned about him, but one of the great stories was when he was, just starting off he there was a business machine. I think it was an adding machine or some kind of thing like that in a office.
1: It was the Gastetner duplicating machine. The
0: duplic yes, okay. And he decided that this thing was hideous and ugly and probably scared the secretaries to death that had to use it and designed a new one, crafted, you know, sculpted a piece and presented it and that really kind of launched his career. So that tells me this guy had well, we know now, but had a vision and an ability to not only interact with design, but also uh, useful applications of design and how it all worked. And there was so much I learned about him. Were there a couple things that you learned in researching and putting this book together that surprised you? He was a,
1: a captain in the French uh, army in the First World War. And he was, um, I think he served with distinction. Today, we can't imagine the horrors of the of the First World War, but it just devastated Europe and England. Uh, the, these countries were destroyed and um, and not just physically, but morally and intellectually, it was just almost impossible for us to comprehend this today. And so Lowy decided to leave and come to the US and he was on a ship and he was out, you know, standing on the deck one day and a person came up and started talking to him and it turned out it was a very wealthy person that owned department stores in New York City. And in those days, you had artists physically draw on the department store window. That's how they did it. They didn't have like posters or things like that. So he hired Lowy to do that. And that's kind of how he got his start was drawing, doing these drawings on department store windows. Mm. And, and as you said, he got this idea that, gee, you know, because we're in the middle of the industrial revolution here in the early part of the 20th century. And he got this idea, you know, if, if, if objects were styled to look attractive, People would buy them. They'd be more likely to buy them. The Gestetner duplicating machine was kind of unique because it was really hideous, loud, smelly, disgusting, and women were, of course, the ones who operated it, were terrified of it. And Lowy realized that, that was, this was a really obvious thing that needed to be fixed. Right. And yes, that is kind of what kickstarted his industrial design career.
0: Today, we take a lot of that for granted. Of course, there's lots of things we see today that are horribly designed and ugly. But <laughs> but it seems like things have become much more well-designed and refined and beautiful and so forth, just as nature of time has changed with consumers and their expectations. But there are plenty of things I remember growing up that you would look at and go, wow. Why do they do it like this? Well, cheaper, faster, who knows, whatever, uh, all those different things. But I'm sure glad there are people like him around and and designers around today. Now, you have a love for cars, and and I'm going to talk with you a little later in our talk today about some of the very unique cars that you've had, because you've had some very different kinds of cars. But I want to talk a little bit about what I call driving inspirations, people in your life that have inspired you. Obviously, Loey is one, uh, this book. I'm sure Peter Vack is one. But there's some people that have been great, influential people in your life?
1: I'm not so sure on the car side. I was, yeah, know, I'm pretty... Hmm. Pretty sad in my ways. I mean, when I was a fairly young person, um, and I'm you know, saying when I was in my teens, of course, I used to ride my bike to all the car dealerships every September and walk around the back lots and look at the new cars, which was, <laughs> thank God I was around in the 50s to do that, because today I don't think that happens. But I was pretty fixated when I, by the time I was about 15, I, I knew that I wanted a Citroen DS, and that was really the driving Thing in my life, and um, I consider that even today, I consider that to be probably the greatest single production car in the history of the automobile. So I suggested to my parents that we get one. They thought that was pretty hilarious. (laughs) But um, anyway, so when I went in the Army, um, I never had any credit, never had a credit card or anything like that. And when I went in the Army, I found out that uh, there's this magical thing called an allotment, and the Army will take money out of your pay every month and pay. A lender, which in my case was a Pentagon Federal Credit Union. So I bought a new Citroën, which was in December of 1969. And I still have it. And I also have a You Citroen still
0: SM. have it today?
1: Never been out of... I won't say it's never been out of a garage, but it's almost never been out of a garage. And I also have a Citroën SM. And between those two cars, I've had those two cars for 82 years. Oh my gosh. So um, I, you know, my philosophy is to... Um, not just with cars, but other things, but you know, to find something and keep it for the rest of your life. So I never really had a direct inspiration about that, um, but I will tell you a quick story. Not I hope I'm not going off too much on a no. tangent, but talking about keeping things for the rest of your life. I have a really wonderful son. He's actually one of the top drummers in the United States. He's been ranked as one of the top 10 metal drummers, which as it turns out is the dominant music in the world. Wow. And um, so his name is Dave Yelich. And when he was 15, he said, "Uh, I want a car. (laughs) And uh, I said, okay, David, well, uh, well, I'll give you one of the Alphas. And he said, I don't want an Alpha. I know what I want. And I said, well, uh, what would that be, David? And he said, I want a 1970 Barracuda. (laughs) And I said, well, David, you were born in 1984. Uh, Why would you want a 1970 Barracuda? And he said, there's no point in discussing this. That's what I want. (laughs) So we lived in a tiny town called Sebastopol, California, a very small town. And strangely enough, we found a person with three, and we bought one, and, um, and he got it. And I told him, I said, okay, David, here's the deal. You can get this car, but you have to promise me that you will keep it for the rest of your life, and you will never sell it. And that was about half his lifetime ago, and it's now been fully restored, and um, he's not going to sell it. So that's kind of my philosophy, and thank God it uh, trickled down to him. He's also a restorer of antique drums, which is a wonderful thing, because yeah. I think this is kind of goes back to your thought about inspiring people, inspiring people to do what I think is one of the great things in life, is finding and collecting and restoring things.
0: Well, uh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, as they say uh that's for sure but the interesting that he chose that car was for him was that a design thing about that car did did something trigger that in his life where he saw one
1: i think all of us there's something in our lives if you're a car person there's something when you see something for the first time it triggers something in you just like i saw the Citroen DS for the first time and i think um obviously he was around chrysler products growing up because uh, i collected chrysler imperials and i think I think the seventy Barracuda is recognized as a pretty seminal design today. And uh, of course, as you know, the uh, the insurance rates got to be almost in- unaffordable at some point, and those muscle cars went away. But they roamed the earth for a short period of time, four, or four or five years. And um, I think that resonated with him somehow.
0: The Barracuda. I remember when I was a little kid? Well, I would have been about. 11 years old, 1970, I guess, 11, 12. And my mom and dad kind of wanted one, but it wasn't really an appropriate family car. <laughs>
1: no, no, probably wasn't.
0: <laughs> but I remember my sister and I, the salesman. I don't know why this stood. Well, I know why it stood out because I burned myself at that dealership. I set on... If you remember those, they look like spaceships, those lights that had cones and there were like three cones stacked on a pole and there was uh-huh. a light inside there. Well, uh-huh. I sat on one of those, <laughs> burned my rear end, oh, ended up in the salesman office with a bag of ice on my butt. Oh, my uh, goodness. Yeah. And the guy was probably like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get sued or something. <laughs> but I remember my sister and I crawling in the back of that thing and laying in the back looking up through that big rear window Yes, and going, this would be cool. Now, we weren't thinking about riding around with seatbelts. On. We were thinking about riding around, laying in the back of that thing. <laughs> of course, my dad said, "Well, this isn't going to work." We ended up with a Osmobile Vista Cruiser, but oh, well, those are actually pretty neat too. Yeah, well, they had that, you know. Why my dad bought it was they had those windows up above. Yes, I know. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, they're pretty yeah, yeah. I had
1: a Buick Roadmaster wagon with that. Oh, they're, okay,
0: yeah. yes. Same, same pretty much design. Yeah. Very, very, very cool. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, we're going to talk about your cars in a little bit because you've had some unique ones, but also about a challenge. But we're going to take a short break for our sponsors and we come back, we're going to talk about maybe some challenges you faced in your life. So keep that in mind and we'll be right back. Auto Geek's Blackfire SiO2 Spray Sealant. It's a spray on wipe off sealant that's quick, safe and easy to clean and protect your vehicles. I love using it on all my cars. AutoGeek's Blackfire SiO2 spray sealant is a spray-on wipe-away sealant that uses SiO2 ingredients to provide a slick, brilliant, and long-lasting shine. Silicon dioxide is known to be one of the most effective ingredients in car care products. And Blackfire spray sealant takes advantage of every stunning feature it has to offer. This sealant will protect your paint from road film, dirt, and other common contaminants while providing an impeccable, long-lasting hydrophobic surface that forces water to sheet and bead on your paint for months. Go to autogeek.net to get yours and for the best product selections on the internet today, along with their skilled technical support. Autogeek.net is where I go for all my detailing needs. That's autogeek.net. Check them out today. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market driving and grow that includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market so come with me and join us on this journey and be sure to use the code cars yeah when you subscribe and they'll give you ten dollars off boom linkage geared for the automotive life subscribe today at linkagemag.com <laughs> So let's talk about this. I like to ask my guests about a big obstacle, a big challenge, maybe even a big failure they face sometime along the way. Uh the point of this is more about the lesson it taught you though. So take us on a little bit of a, a rough ride through the forest, if you will.
1: Well, I think I've had a tremendous amount of luck in my life and I don't think I've had any really dreadful experiences. Um I think the one thing uh, I think this is probably a lot harder today. I'm not sure I'd want to be twenty two years old today and finishing college and trying to um you know trying to start a life but in my case um you know I uh, I had to go we had a draft uh in those days so I had to go right in the army when I finished college and um and we had um we had some we had some issues in our unit uh, we actually had a mutiny and um it was a i would say a pretty
0: um
1: uh, unique experience Um, but we were a very small, tiny unit, um, and I think it caused us to bond with one another, and we still, you know, all of us got out in the early 70s, and we still get together every year because of that experience, and in fact, we just had a reunion in October, and we went uh, to the new Museum of the Army in Washington, D.C., so I think things like that can actually, uh, for some reason, it. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about a very small group of people, less than 20 people, young lieutenants. But um, we were very lucky. Uh, and uh, and I, I'm very grateful for that experience.
0: Okay. Now that begs t- to ask, <laughs> the, a mutiny, I mean, that doesn't usually happen. Maybe it does. I don't know. But in the military, they don't really put up with that kind of stuff. How, how did the group get away with that?
1: Well, to make a very long story short, um, we were stationed in Wiesbaden, Germany. And um, we were in a very old barracks that was built by the nazis and the barracks was falling apart right so there was no the army hadn't spent any money on it the living units were pretty disgusting for the troops the officers lived downtown in a hotel like i did but um the troops had you know oftentimes no heat no hot water that it oh was my gosh success. yeah it was pretty disgusting and um and they you know they wanted some attention they wanted the you know the barracks to be cleaned up and they wanted what's called a concern to be cleaned up. And we also had, um, you know, we're talking about 1970, 71, 72 here. We also had a lot of racial issues because, um, as you probably know, a disproportionate number of black troops were drafted and were sent to Vietnam. And so when their Vietnam tour was over, the army sent them to Germany as kind of a gift, you know. Well, this is a little present now. You know, you get to go to Germany. You
0: get to go live in a ratty barracks. Right. But,
1: uh, you know, some of the, um, bars downtown wouldn't take black people oh. and, and some of the taxis wouldn't take black people. And, wow. and so they felt marginalized, which they were, I think. And so, uh, the black troops went on, they basically went on strike. We had four nuclear rounds in the unit and we were getting ready to go to the field and they went on strike. They went into the movie theater and they sat down and said, we're not going. And, wow. um, our senior officers were, um, they were out to lunch, really. They didn't get it. And actually what, I think one of the things that bonded us was that the lieutenants ran the unit. The captains and the senior officers were just not there. Yeah. And that never happens in the Army. It never happens that the lieutenants run a small unit. And so, um, so we ended up, of course, the Colonel and XO were relieved and we got new people. And, and ultimately I think we had a really excellent, um, Black officer who was able to communicate with the troops and ultimately were able to get it resolved. But it was, um, you know, we did have four nuclear rounds and it was, um, wow, a little scary at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's, um, you know, it was one of those things that the Army went through. And of course, the Army today is completely different. It's, as, as my friend, uh, Colonel DeLomo says, uh, the best thing that ever happened to the Army is the all volunteer army. And today the people that are there want to be there. And they're learning valuable skills, which will help them for the rest of their lives. And so I'm very proud of the way the Army has transitioned um, into the new world. But it was uh, an interesting time, as were the 60s, I guess, in the U.S.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I appreciate your service, Brands. My father was in the Army for a few years. He was in ROTC in college, so he had to fulfill his obligations. And uh, he was sent off with uh, his new wife, my mom, to Japan, which is where I was made um got it stamped somewhere on my rear end i can't see it but uh (laughs) but uh yeah ended up uh they ended up in japan for a few years and um for that that experience for him was was good and interesting for my mom it was life-changing because she'd never really even been out of her hometown very much so uh to go to a foreign country and see a different culture and it was you know really enlightening for them but uh yeah wow fascinating story well you retired a while back but you're still having fun around cars and so forth. Is there still uh, a couple things on your bucket list you'd like to accomplish uh, when it comes to your your car world? And we are going to get to some of these very unique cars with the next question. So,
1: um I um people said this would never happen, but um all the cars here actually run and drive except I have two um restoration projects. My Citroen is actually getting a change. It was like the last car made with brake fluid hydraulics and it's being converted to LHM which is a mineral fluid and um, so that's a pretty big job uh, and that's so it's in the shop. There's, of course there's almost no Citroen mechanics left. There's one in Santa Cruz, um uh, price and other than that there's almost nobody else around anymore um, so I'm very lucky that he's agreed to do that and then I'm just started a new project which is you know I'm, my role is to rescue things so okay. um, I have a rescued dog who's actually sitting right at my foot right now, and I have, um, so I rescued a 62 Chrysler Newport Coupe, which had somebody, some half-wit had used as a parts car, and so now we're having the engine rebuilt and the transmission rebuilt, and then I had to get the trim, which was pretty difficult, but I think I'm actually going to get that done this year, so that's kind of my current project.
0: Wow, sounds like fun, but you've had a lot of unique projects, so I'm going to run through Some of the cars that I know about with you, you mentioned Citroën SM, uh, a Fossil Vega 59, which is a fascinating car, an HK500. There was a guy who lived down the street from me when I was a kid that had one of those. And I remember going down and always looking at it in his garage going, what is that thing? Uh, You have a 38 Lagonda V12, a 62 Chrysler Newport, of course, mentioned that. Uh, Citroën GS, a Jaguar XJR and XJS, um, and seven different Alphas. You're a bit eclectic, aren't you?
1: Well, I think you know hmm, this might be a controversial comment. I think <laughs> every car collector should have an alpha. I mean I just think this is a basic thing. You should either have an alpha. <laughs> if you don't have an alpha or a Jaguar, you're not a real car person. Uh oh. I know that's a little controversial, You've laid down the gauntlet for me now. <laughs> that's the way uh, that's the way I feel. So I did have a variety of alphas and um I'd actually restored a duetto, which was a a, a car that was Pretty much on the edge. The floors had rotted out. Even the trunk lid had rotted out, and the engine uh, had seized, and the brakes had seized. And I restored that whole car, and it was a big job. And then I had probably the only rust free Alfetta GT Coupe in the United States, and I lost that in the last divorce, and it ended up going to the Netherlands because there's none of them over there. Uh So at least that was saved. But, um, Uh, And then my good friend, I should mention as an inspiration, my good friend Richard Krennis, who passed away a few years ago, but he had the world's fastest Alpha. He took an Alpha uh, Spider and took it to Bonneville for many years and actually got to, uh, he wanted to join the 200-mile-an-hour club. Now, this is with the original Alpha four-cylinder motor, and uh, he got to 200 finally after many years, and he went to join the 200-mile-an-hour club, and they said, oh, uh, well, sorry, but we had to raise the... Number because too many people were qualifying, so they raised it to like 212 or something. Oh, no. So so he ended up ultimately doing like 220. I can't remember the
0: exact (laughs) number. I'll show you.
1: (laughs) Number. And so I went twice with him to Bonneville to see that, and that was um, quite an experience uh, as well.
0: I think I've seen pictures of that car at Bonneville. The yellow car. Yes, the yellow car. Yes. Yeah, very cool. Well, you know, I guess that's the spice of life is variety, and you certainly have figured out to to have the spice of life and variety with all these uh, very special cars, which takes me to a unique question that I love to ask my guests, and that is this. I'm going to be your car psychologist today, Brands. Okay. If you were manifest as a vehicle, not what you want to be, but how you perceive the man in the mirror, what would you be, but more importantly, why?
1: Well, I'd be a Citroen DS because I consider this to be such a spectacular design. I mean, I certainly, I think if you were looking kind of at the intellectual side of car design, you'd, you'd gravitate towards Lancia and Citroën, those two manufacturers. And, um, so, um, and I would certainly like to have a Lancia. It's probably too late for me now. But, um, so my, I think that would be the car that I would, if I, if I was, I don't know what the right word is, but, uh,
0: Manifest.
1: (laughs) Manifested as a car that's, what I would
0: be, yes. Okay. Well, I think that makes sense, haven't gotten to know you a little bit better today. You know, I love to ask my guests about a book, but of course, the book that we're going to be promoting today, and I'll put links to where you can, are they still available, your books? Well, I have the books, and when Dave
1: passed away, Dave was actually selling them, and when he passed away, of course, uh, I had to Bring them all back here, so they're in okay. my loft. But uh, yes, yeah, so somebody can just contact me, and I can, you know, send them a copy.
0: Okay, so, Is would uh, email be the best way for? Yeah, them email to would be you? the best
1: thing. It's okay. my name, yahoo.com.
0: I'll put a, a link to that on the show notes page. Of course, Lancia is it pronounced Loremo? Is that how you say that? Yeah, is
1: that Loremo? Actually, you know, back in those days, well, I'm talking about the 30s and 40s, but um, there was no internet, uh, so. People used what's called a Telex, and that was Lowy's cable address, was his oh, name, backwards, okay. Lowy Raymond. Oh, so they abbreviated okay. it as Loremo.
0: Okay. Well, uh, Lancia Loremo and the Lowy Logic of Industrial Design. I have my copy here. Really deserves a place on your automotive library shelf. It's fascinating, lots of interesting information, and this car, I guarantee you, you probably have never seen it before which is very, very unique in the history. So I'll put links to that, and to get yourself a copy, uh, you can reach out to brands and get one just like I do. Now, I'm going to allow you to go on what I call the ultimate drive today. I've got an open checkbook. Money's no object. If you could pick any car, any person, living or deceased, and you could be driving anywhere, what does the ultimate drive look like for a guy like you that's probably been on a lot of ultimate drives?
1: You know, I thought about this, and um, I I think the person— would be Walter P. Chrysler.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, Walter Chrysler, you know, started out as an automotive, I mean, as a, a locomotive mechanic. So he actually worked in the back shop. He became a master mechanic, um, and uh, superintendent. And then uh, many years later in 1908, he went to a car show and he saw a locomobile, which of course would be the greatest in my opinion, the greatest American car in that period would be on par with a Duisenberger that I can't even imagine today. But the locomobile was a fantastic car. And, um, it was extremely expensive, probably the price of a house in most cases. And so he bought the car and never, he didn't drive it. He just took it home and he disassembled the entire car piece by piece to figure out how it
0: worked. Wow.
1: And, um, okay. then he met, um, Charles Nash, who was at that time president of GM, offered him a job, uh, for Bu- at Buick, and he was made president of Buick. And then after a while, he, started Chrysler corporation and and was extremely successful and of course built the greatest building in the United States the Chrysler Building and oh, yeah actually lived in the Kings Point Marine Academy and commuted to the Chrysler Building by speedboat every morning oh my gosh and you know and he was a person who would sit down with his workers in the cafeteria went in the factory. So in other words instead of being in the ivory tower like uh, people today he would go out and sit down with the workers on the assembly line and have lunch with them and wow. so I consider Walter Chrysler to be the great, you know, to be my kind of hero in that regard. And um, in terms of cars, it's an impossible question to answer. I I know. People always ask me, well, what do you, if you had money, what would you buy? And I say, you know what, I'm pretty happy with what I have now, thank goodness. And I don't, I mean, I'm actually going to go look at a Hudson uh, this week. I shouldn't say that. I hope (laughs) no one of my family's listening to this.
0: Uh oh, the disease (laughs) continues.
1: But, uh, yeah, so it's like it's, it's a compulsion, really. It's a it's an addiction. It's a compulsion. But Of course. So people ask me, like, is there one car that you would like to have that you don't have? And I this is an answer you'll never guess this in a million years, but a Renault R5 Turbo, I think, oh, would be okay. kind of the thing that I would like to have. I'd probably kill myself in it. And <laughs> uh, I'm not allowed to use any power tools or anything like that. But I've, I've always thought the R5 Turbo was such a great car, such a brilliant design. And, um, of course, there now people want the Clio Williams, but I think I would really like to just try that out and see what it's like of course most of them caught fire and uh have been subsequently the ones that weren't destroyed in racing or caught fire there's still a few left but um so that would be kind of my off the wall answer to that
0: that is off the wall with balter p chrysler wow unique i figured i'd get a unique answer from a guy like you brands (laughs) before i let you go could you offer us maybe some words of wisdom inspiration or a success quote
1: well um let's see um You know, I thought about this. There's a quote by Jackie Robinson, and it says, he said, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. And I think that's what you've done with your 2000 interviews. Thank you. And I think that's what I tried to do with my 150 columns for Pete Vac. And I think what we want to do, and I think what you're doing probably better than anybody, is inspiring automotive enthusiasts. And there's still a lot of cars out there that need to be saved and to be restored, and yeah. they're still being scrapped and uh so there's people need to be inspired and they need to be and they need to do that so um I do want to close with one um we're talking about inspiring people yes. um and that's my mentor, Bob Card. I think I mentioned to you that Bob started with nothing, came from a family that didn't really have much, never thought he would go to college, and the local women's club gave him a, I think a $300 stipend and said, here, why don't you go to university? He had never thought about that. And he went to University of Illinois was the first graduating class with computer science major. And he started with nothing, And ended up building a company uh, over many, many years. And he ended up selling it to one of his competitors for um, $4 billion. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, not only that, uh, Bob has fully restored since we're in the restoration, you and I are in the restoration world, Bob has fully restored Woodrow Wilson's house in Princeton, which was quite a big job. Oh, my gosh. Um, And he lives there. So, in any event, so what Bob did was he decided that he was going to pay back that woman's club. And so he said, I'm going to start sending kids to college. And we're talking about kids. They're identified in the ninth grade. These are kids from, their parents are in jail. Their parents are, uh, there's no money in the family. They're homeless. They're foster children. They're kids with no future whatsoever. Yeah. And he identifies these kids in ninth grade and he tells them, I'm going to send you to college. Wow. Here's what you need to do to do that. And so far he has sent 1,500 oh my gosh to college and paid for it with his own money. Wow. And now he has donated his entire net worth to this charity, which is called... Um, Uh, give back. And he has now his goal is to get 10,000 kids through college. And I was privileged to be able to help him with this a little bit last year. And he's going to do it. And, you know, when you change one kid's life, the the parents are in jail, the parents are drug addicts, it's a foster child. You know, we have a massive foster child issue in the United States. And um, when you change one kid's life, you not only change that kid, you change their family and and ultimately you change their town and their community. And this is one of the great things that I think we can do in the United States is to do this kind of thing. And I'm grateful that I've been able to work with Bob over the years, and he has been really an inspiration to me.
0: Oh, my gosh. What a wonderful story. Yeah. Oh, beyond, beyond, beyond. I mean, just amazing. And look at what that nice thing that the women's group did for him and where it led to. Changed his life. He's changing lives. Absolutely brilliant story. Well, I'm going to put a link to Brand's email so you can get your hands on his book. And I'm going to do a shout out thank you to our mutual friend, Diane Brandon. Diane, thank you. She's introduced me to so many wonderful people and another one today in you, Brand. So thank you for spending some time with me today. Thanks for being so generous with your time and sharing your life in this book. It's fabs, absolutely fantastic. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road.
1: Okay. Thank you, Mark. Take care now.
0: You're welcome. If your car started today, well, thank attack. If that truck delivering your goods today got to your home or your business, thank attack. If that airplane you rode in took off and landed safely, and if that boat you're riding in arrived at the dock safe and sound, that's right. Thank a tech. One thing the pandemic has taught us is that great techs keep America rolling. They are essential workers and we need them. Support career and technical education by getting involved with TechForce Foundation. It's a Cars Yeah charity of choice. Learn more at techforce.org today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah.